what's your idea of the golden age? We asked that in the very first sermon on the book of Leviticus just a couple of months ago. Uh, your idea of the golden age could include some of the simplicity from your childhood. Your idea of the golden age might include some of the utopian elements that none of us have experienced yet. Maybe like Back to the Future flying cars, I don't know. But as with many areas, uh, God's idea of the golden age is much grander and way bigger than our idea of the golden age. God's idea of our golden age is a deeper experience of his presence. It's an age of abundance. It's an age of peace. It's an age of community. It's an age of closeness to him. Now, you might be surprised by this, but God holds out the prospect of this golden age in all places in the book of Leviticus. Now, you and I probably mainly think of Leviticus as a set of rules. A list of do's and don'ts. A law book for an ancient people in a foreign place with no remaining relevance for us. Friends, au contraire. Leviticus is not just a set of rules. It is a set of resolutions to follows. Leviticus is not an isolated list of do's and don'ts. Leviticus advances the Bible's big narrative. The big narrative of how God is reconciling the world to himself, ultimately through King Jesus. Now, to bring us up to speed, prior to Leviticus, God's people faced the problem of being enslaved to the nation of Egypt. Enslaved to Egypt under the service of Pharaoh. They faced this problem, but God resolved this problem. He delivered his people, he made them his own, and he brought them under the freedom of his service. But then after that, the Israelites were now God's people, but now they faced the problem of God not actively dwelling among them. Resolve this problem. He instructed them to build a tabernacle, and by the end of the book of Exodus, God takes up residence in the camp of his people. He dwells among them. And so, yes, it's great God now dwells among his people, but they face another problem. They face the problem that they can't approach the place where God dwells. You might have guessed it, but God resolves this problem too. He instructs how the blood of sacrifices could cover their sin against him. God gives them priests who mediates these sacrifices, and the priests could go into God's presence on their behalf. And God provides yearly cleansing for his dwelling place and for his people. This is roughly the first half of Leviticus. So, it's great news. God's people can now approach the place where God dwells. But they face another problem. They are going to a place that's filled with temptation. A place where people worship false gods, a place where people walk contrary to God's ways. God resolves his problem. He instructs his people how they will stay close to him. He exposes the ways of the Canaanites and the Egyptians around them. And he warns his people about where those ways lead. God tells his people how to live well before his presence. How to follow leaders who set the pace for them. How to follow a rhythm of life so that they keep close to him how to follow instructions about how to treat what they have in a way that honors him. So here it's at this point that God holds out the prospect of a golden age. Now remember, he's already delivered his people. God has already made them his own. He already dwells among them. 
He's already made a way for them to approach him. He's already instructed them how to stay close to him. Now, he tells them, you can enjoy even more of me. This is what God wants for his people, to enjoy even more of him. But here's the rub. Enjoying the blessings of his presence hinges on their obedience to him. And that relates to the main point of our time as we come to the end of Leviticus, chapters 26, 27. Find the main point printed on the back of your bulletin. That God desires his people to enjoy the blessings of his presence, but it will come only through obedience to his covenant. God desires his people to enjoy the blessings of his presence, but it will come only through obedience to his covenant. So God tells them, you can grow even closer to me. But he also warns them, you can also grow farther away from me. So in the final chapters of Leviticus, God looks looks out at their future, and he lays out for them four different ways they can relate to him. They can be near him, they can be far from him, they can be restored by him, and they can be committed to him. As we go through these four ways, it's my prayer that your relationship with God would be bolstered today. Your relationship with God would be bolstered when you see God's good and patient character. It would be bolstered when you understand the true heart behind why we obey the Lord. And your relationship with God would be bolstered when you hold on to hope for sinners like you and me. So let's look at these four ways that God's people can relate to him. Number one, they can relate to him by being near God. The first thing God does as he looks out at their future is he holds out the blessings of being near him. So look with me in Leviticus 26, verses 1 to 13. I invite you to turn there with me, follow along as I read. We'll be on page 104. The word of the Lord reads, You shall not make idols for yourselves, or erect an image or a pillar. And you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruits. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give you peace in the land, And you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your hand. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept. And you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke, and made you walk away. This is the word of the Lord. So how do you teach young kids? lots of theories. How do you teach young kids? One of the phrases that my wife uses with her students are green choices and red choices. 
So how do you get kids to make green choices and not red choices? Do you explain to kids the uh, virtue ethics and the philosophy behind it? Do you explain to kids uh, natural law theory and the merits of a just and moral life that contribute to a just and moral society? <laughs> I probably wouldn't start there, you know. <laughs> you have to teach kids through repetition and reinforcement, or positive and negative. And God's people are just big versions of kids. They need repetition and reinforcement. And that's what's going on here. So God tells his people what it means to be near him. And he starts with repetition. You look at chapter 26, verses 1 and 2, and they look a lot similar to commands that God's given them before. But as he comes to the close of Leviticus, he repeats what was most important. To be near God involves being loyal to God. And that means you don't worship other gods. Now, friends, let's be clear. Other gods are more than just other little statues. They are anything you put in God's place, the place that only God should have. So God tells his people, if you are to be near me, you must be loyal to me. If you are to be loyal to me, then you must protect your loyalty to me. So protecting their loyalty to God involves protecting the Sabbath day and protecting God's sanctuary. So this is the time and this is the place that they especially set apart to worship God. They have to protect these things to protect their loyalty to him. You think about this, this dynamic really still works for Christians today. I think of a place like Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, which warns us when we neglect gathering with God's people, our loyalty to God weakens and becomes vulnerable. Maybe to put it differently, maybe a little more straightforward. It is rare to be close to God and far from church. So if they're to be near him, they must be loyal to him. That's what it means to be near God. But we move on to verses 3 to 13. To be near God is not just to be loyal to him, it's to obey him. And Jesus' words come to my mind. Jesus doesn't say that we are his friends if we have a fish decal on our bumper on our, on our bumper of our car. <laughs> Jesus does not say we are his friends if we fill a seat at church. Jesus does not say we are his friends if we vote for a certain political candidate. In John 15, 14, Jesus says, You are my friends if you do what I commanded. Obeying God is the banner that hangs over verses 3 through 13. And we should be careful because there are plenty of pitfalls we can fall into when thinking about our obedience to God. And these verses address them. One pitfall we might fall into is what motivates our obedience to God. You and I might obey God in order to show how much better we are than other people around us. You and I might obey God in order to show we're not what's wrong with the world. Those people are what's wrong with the world. But look back at verse 1. God explains that they should obey him simply because of who he is. For I am the Lord. So we obey God to show how special God is, not to show how special we are. Now, you and I might obey God in order to earn God's love and attention. Now, perhaps we operate that way because we've had relationships like this before. Relationships with people where we only get their love and attention when we do something for them. That's not how God loved, God's love for us works. God's love starts with him doing something for us. 
not with us doing something for him. It's the same thing here. As God calls them to obedience, it is in response to what he has already done. So verse 2, chapter 26, God already dwells with them in the sanctuary. Verse 13, God already freed them and made them his own. So it's important to know obedience is the response to God's grace, not the way to earn God's grace. Now we might fall into a pitfall of thinking about why we obey God. We might obey God out of this sense of disenchanted duty. We might obey God sort of like we obey a boss at work we don't really like. Sure, like we, we do what he says, but basically we check in, we check out, and we expect God to do the bare minimum, and at times we expect we're just going to have to put up with some of God's business. Not these verses. God assures his people that obedience to him is the path to joy and blessing. And really, if our obedience to God is going to last, we must trust that this is true. I think of Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So friends, what does it mean to be near God? To be near God is to be loyal to him. To be, to be near God is to obey him. And to be near God results in enjoying blessings from him. So, uh, verses 4 and 5, God promises the blessings of rain and good harvest. He says you're going to have so much produce that your farmers are never going to stop working. They're always going to have stuff to bring in. Verses 6 to 10, God promises the blessing of peace. You know, food isn't worth much if someone or something else takes it away. So, God promises peace from predator animals and peace from predator people. God also promises to make them fruitful, give them big families. In verses 12 and 13, God promises the greatest blessing of all. He promises closeness to them. You see, the tabernacle could be an empty shrine, but God promises it will be a living reality. And you look at verse 12, he promises even more. He won't just dwell among them. He says he'll walk among them. And all of these blessings, especially that last one in verse 12, should remind us of what existed before this time. It's to remind us of what was in place at the very beginning, way back in the Garden of Eden. See, in Eden, in Genesis 3, verse 8, it says that God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And what were the curses that unfolded in Eden after Adam and Eve rebelled against God? Well, the curses were the opposite of what's promised here. The land would not be fruitful or easily cult cultivated. It would be hard to work. There would no longer be peace. There would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There would not be big families. No, and the curse was that there would be pain in childbirth. There would not be closeness to God, God walking among them. Worst of all, from Eden, there would be banishment from God's dwelling place. So we look at chapter 6, chapter 26, verses 1 to 13. It's like God's saying, guys, if you stay near to me, you'll get beaten more. And so then we try to bring this to ourselves. Why don't we just name and claim these promises? We're God's people. We are near Him. Aren't these promises for us? Well, we want to be careful and fit these within the Bible's big story. So unfortunately, just as Adam disobeyed God and lost Eden, 
So Israel, like a second Adam, would disobey and lose the recapturing of Eden. But where Adam failed and where Israel failed, Jesus did not fail. Jesus was completely loyal to his father. He obeyed God all the time. And now to be near God is to trust in Jesus, God's Son. Even Jesus himself says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And by Jesus' obedience, he has secured every spiritual blessing for those who trust in him. And to be clear, those who trust in Jesus are more than just those from one physical nation. Jesus said, his kingdom is not of this world. They are from people of every tribe, nation, and tongue. Those who trust in Jesus still long to be near him. They are loyal to God. They obey God. And Jesus says that God knows their physical needs and will provide for them. Think of a place like Matthew 6. But at the same time, Jesus says that his followers' circumstances on earth won't always reflect their destination in heaven. Jesus' followers' circumstances on earth won't always reflect their destination in heaven. In fact, 1 Peter 4 tells followers of Jesus not to think it's weird when their lives are hard. So friends, don't hear me saying that Leviticus 26 has no relevance for you. Expect your life to be crummy. <laughs> no, God has gifts and joys and goodness in store for us here. But here's what we are saying. The blessings that God gives his people on earth often meant to shape their hearts for the blessings he'll give them in heaven. It reminds me of one of the great lines from uh, one of John Newton's many hymns. John Newton's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. You didn't know. He writes of God's perspective in our trials. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you may find your all. So in light of this, maybe here's a prayer for us, brothers and sisters. We would pray, Father, in your wise and loving care for me, bring anything in my life that will drive me closer to you. Bring anything in my life that will build my trust in you. Bring anything in my life that will secure my loyalty to you. Bring anything in my life that will cause me to enjoy you more. Friends, those are the real blessings. So when God wraps up the book of Leviticus, he looks out at Israel's future. They could be near him and enjoy him more and more, but they could also be far from him. So this is our second point. God holds out the curses of being far from him. So look with me at verses 14 to 16. God says, But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. So what does it mean to be far from God? If to be near God is to obey Him, then to be far from God is to disobey Him. That makes sense. But these verses here, even verses 14 to 16, they give us an onion. And we can peel back the layers of our disobedience to God. So just like obedience to God is deeper than service-level behavior, so is disobedience to God. So those who are far from God, you peel back one layer, one layer, and you find that they live contrary to God's ways. They disobey Him. 
But you peel back their disobedience, and the next layer you'll find is that they don't listen to God. How do you expect to follow God's ways if you don't listen to what God says? How can you expect to live a lifestyle of obedience if you don't know and reflect what God says in his word? But you peel back the layer, again, of not listening to God, and what do you get? It's something that verse five, uh, verse 16 describes. You get someone who spurns God's statutes, someone who abhors God's rules. This is the core of it, the core of our disobedience. Because you and I often think that our sins are, are just little, that we, that we do things like white lies. We think of our sins like Bob Ross thinks of mistakes on his canvas. <laughs> They're little happy accidents, right? But here's this onion. Underneath our disobedience to God, underneath our not listening to him, underneath all of that, is pride and unbelief. For any sin, for any disobedience, it's like you and I are telling God, you know what, God? I know better than you. I don't believe you know what you're doing. You know what, God? I, I don't really believe you're worth listening to. In fact, I can do a better job than you. So I'm going to do it my way, and I'm going to get what, what I want, and God, you know what? You better get out of my way. That is the heart behind every single sin. And you tell me that somebody who lives like that can be close to God? No. So what happens when we are far from God? There's a series of consequences in verses 16 to 39. And these consequences are the exact opposites of verses 3 to 13, the exact opposite of the blessings. Instead of security, there is destruction. Instead of having land, they get booted out of the land, exile. Instead of multiplication of children, they will be so desperate. It's hard to read. Verse 29, they will eat their children. Instead of closeness to God, there is curse from God. Now, when we read this from where we stand, we see this as more than just a warning. We know all the Bible. This is a prophecy. This is what really happened to the Israelites. Even in verse 34, it's like Moses kind of knows that they're going to end up disobeying God, and they're going to end up giving up the time that they set apart for the Lord. Friends, what happens when we are far from God? When God's people stray from him, throughout all these verses we see it, when God's people stray from him, oh, God runs after them. These consequences, all of them, are the Lord's discipline. And the Bible is clear that like a father, the Lord disciplines those he loves. So as we read these consequences, we should see God's patience. In fact, if you're paying attention, you'll see four pauses along the way. You'll see a pause in verse 18, in verse 21, in verse 23, and verse 27. It's like God gives these consequences and then he pauses. He does all of them. He brings these consequences to get their attention with the goal of them coming back. And we think about ourselves in relating to all of this. On our own, you and I are far from God. This is truth about us on our own. Ephesians 2 literally says that once we were far off. Book of Romans says that we were enemies to God. Isaiah 53 says each one of us went our own way, not his way. So 
we think about each one of us, we have the same onion as verses 14 to 16, chapter 26, the same hearts. Each one of us on our own, we are on the same road of the curses and consequences of verses 17 to 31. But we read the good news earlier from Galatians 3, that Jesus bore the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So that not only are we blessed through Jesus' obedience and not our own, we are also freed by Jesus' death, not our own. And Romans 8 masterfully captures the reality that Jesus is now ushered in. That though we join the rest of creation and groan about the effects of sin that remain, we still rest that there is no more condemnation, no more curse for those who are in Christ Jesus. But even as we say this good news, friends, we shouldn't leave it here. We'd be remiss to leave it here. These verses in Leviticus, they should leave us feeling the weight of Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 10. Just that simple warning when he tells them, careful if you think you stand as you fall. My brother and sister, this, this isn't the sowed seeds of doubt in you. This isn't to, to dismiss the hard things that happen to you. This isn't to dismiss that we, each one of us have different temperaments and personalities that's, so that each of our walks with the Lord might look slightly different. For all of those caveats, it is to say to you and to me, it is possible to be far from the Lord. It's possible. It's possible to grow more distant. Now, I mean, maybe you feel like that today, and maybe this could be your first step back today, and, and praise God. But maybe recently you started to grow a little complacent, maybe a, a little lazy, maybe it's easier to miss church, maybe it's easier to keep your Bible closed for days at a time, maybe it's easier to go several days without really praying. You know, I, so I've heard this from somebody else, growing far from God is kind of like drinking black coffee. Anybody drink coffee black here? All right, these are my people. Okay. Um, so when I, how I got to drink black coffee is I didn't immediately start to drink black coffee. I had to sweeten it. I had to put, I had to load it with cream and sugar so that I was more drinking coffee with my cream and sugar. So, but eventually I could wean myself off of it. And so eventually I could just drink it straight. Growing far from God and sin in our lives is kind of like that. We can't just drink it straight at first. We have to sweeten it with lies we tell ourselves. We have to justify it so that it goes and so we can stomach it. But sooner or later, we can drink it straight. We don't have to lie to ourselves anymore. But this is, this is what it looks like to grow far from God. But if you could relate to that this morning, Ricky, this is God's heart to expose this and to help you, and we want to help bring you back again. And we say also to anybody here today who isn't quite clear on their relationship with God, anybody here who couldn't definitively say that you trust in Jesus as your Savior and follow Him as your Lord, my friend, let any hard circumstance in your life right now act as God's mercy to you. Because it is nothing compared to being separated from Him forever. And my friend, today, let any success in your life act as God's mercy to you. Because His kindness to you and His patience to you is meant to lead you to repentance. 
because like us, your earthly circumstance does not always align with your eternal destination. So just like any one of us, if you stay on your own way, friend, you will be far from God forever. Under his curse, If that gets your attention, well, good. It should. As we feel the weight of this warning, we look to the God who restores. That's in verses 40 to 46, chapter 26. So again, God looks out at his people's future. He offers them the prospect of being near to, the, to him, but he warns of being far from him, and he gives hope for being restored to him. Look with me in verses 40 to 43 which says, but if they confess their iniquity in the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember so what does it look like to be restored to God? Well, make no mistake, being restored to God involves repentance on, on our end. Admitting our sin, turning from it, leaving it behind. We see here they even confess the sins of their fathers. That's because God made a covenant not just with individuals, but with a group. But even though uh, being restored by God involves repentance on our end, we could not be restored to God if God was not merciful it wouldn't matter if we wanted to go back to God if God wouldn't take us back. So we should never use this as an excuse to sin. Don't hear me saying that, but we should always use this as an encouragement to return when we do sin. Being restored to God involves our repentance, but it is possible only because of God's heart. So we hold on to Jesus' sweet words from John 6, verse 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Being restored to God involves repentance on our end, but it is possible only because of God's intervention. You see the phrase, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled. A lot going on here. Circumcision was a physical sign that marked them off from the pagan nations around them. Now, if they are to be humble, God must humble them. So in their hearts, they're just like the pagan nations around them. So God must intervene. So in their restoration to God, God made the first move, not them. He pursued them when they didn't pursue him, like in all those consequences we talked about. So we return to John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Being restored to God involves repentance, but it is possible only because of God's heart, only because of God's intervention, and only because of God's faithfulness. Did you notice how God remembers a covenant here? And this covenant is the one he made with Abraham, and then he repeated it to Isaac and to Jacob. And this covenant God remembers here is different from the covenant he made with them at Mount Sinai. So it's like God saying, when you guys break the covenant I made with you, well then I'm just going to remember the covenant I made with Abraham. God promised to Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Jesus came and he kept Israel's side of the covenant God made with them at Mount Sinai. 
And so now God brings to us Gentiles the blessings of God's covenant with Abraham. That's what we read from Galatians 3. That in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Being restored to God involves repentance, but it's possible only because of God's plan, only because God intervenes, and only because God is faithful. Now we come to chapter 27. Chapter 27 on the surface kind of seems like a letdown but to end the book. It's largely an appendix that God tacks on at the end. But chapter 27 mirrors chapter 1 by highlighting people's personal responsibility to the Lord. So if in chapter 26 God shows his commitment to them, chapter 27 God calls them to show their commitment to him. So chapter 27 talks a lot about vows that people make to God. Now, times that people would make vows are when they're in a really dangerous situation. So examples from the Bible, Genesis 28, Jacob faces his angry brother Esau. Jonah chapter 2, Jonah faces an angry whale. They're both in dire straits, so they both basically say, God, if you deliver me, I promise to do this. Maybe some of us have prayed that kind of prayer. <laughs> Leviticus 27 addresses vows made to God. The most basic vow is to dedicate yourself to God's service. Now for them, that would mean serving in the tabernacle. But only those from the tribe of Levi could do that. So you fulfill that vow by donating money to fund the tabernacle. Now people didn't just vow themselves, they also would vow their animals or vow their land. But throughout this chapter, God normally allows his people to buy back what they have promised to him. But he discourages that by lumping on an extra 20% to those who change their minds. So here for us, Jesus is similarly concerned that we would honor our commitments, especially our commitment to the Lord. So what does it look like to be committed to God? Well, it means that we follow through on what we say. As Jesus says, our yes is yes, and our no is no. It means that we commit to God, not just for the show of it, we commit to God sincerely. Jesus also warns about making empty promises, empty vows, and ignoring how God says to live in all of our lives. Jesus called out the Pharisees for this when they vowed their money to the temple in order to get out of caring for their parents. It's a reminder that God wants us to dedicate, to promise, to commit to him with all of our lives, not just to write a check. So perhaps in chapter 27 is a fitting conclusion to Leviticus. It reminds God's people that they are to be holy, to live like they truly belong to the Lord. All that they are, all that they have, devoted and committed to him. And the call for us to be holy as God is holy, that remains. But as one pastor says, any sacrifice we make for God is nothing compared to the sacrifice that he made for us. Jesus committed himself to us when we were enemies to God. And not only did Jesus die in our place, he rose again, and he sent the Holy Spirit to apply the power of his resurrection to our hearts, so that when we look out at our future, there is hope that we can stay committed to God, not because of anything about us, but because of God's grace to us by His Spirit, because of Christ's full atonement for us, because of the Spirit dwelling in us, because of God's patience, patience toward us. We can stay committed to the Lord. And when we look out at our future, we can see a golden age. 
even in the pit of exile, when they're experiencing the curses they, that God warned them about, God still held out this hope for his people. We read about it in Ezekiel 34, where God promises peace and abundance and closeness to him. And God still holds out this golden age to us today. Jesus will bring it. And I'll tell you, these days, hope is hard to come by. But our hope for the future is anything but wishful thinking. Our hope for the future is secured by what Jesus done in the past, and it radically changes how we look at the present. Jesus will bring us this golden age of abundance, of peace, of closeness to God. Jesus will bring us to a place that's even better than Eden. Jesus will bring a new creation. Jesus will bring a resolution for the problem of sin in us and sin around us. And Jesus will bring this for anyone who trusts and follows him. This golden age is described in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. We'll let this close for now. Then the, angel of, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of the God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or a lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will be. Dear Lord, if the prospect of securing this golden age rested only on us, we would lose it. We would not have it. We would be consigned to your curse in hell. But God, because of your grace in Christ, you bore the curse, you secured the blessing, and now, by your Spirit, we can be committed to following you. Lord, we are restored only by your grace. We walk forward to this golden age only because of what you have done for us and because of your strength in us. Please teach us this continually. Please shape our hope for this. And we commit all of this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're to respond to the word by taking the Lord's Supper together. So if you haven't received uh, gotten elements for the Lord's Supper, you'll find them in the back of the